Father, we're just so grateful to gather together this morning as the church. And Lord, just to sing together these songs and Lord, entering the season where we begin to sing and think about and remember uh, the birth of your son, Jesus, who came to save us. Lord, we are so grateful that you sent your son, Jesus. And as we enter in this sermon series on Advent, thinking about who Jesus is, Lord, I pray that in all of our hearts as we study these texts, as we learn from your scriptures, that you would show us in maybe a a way that we've never really seen before who your son Jesus really is. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts as we gaze upon who Jesus is. And Lord, help us to see today that our joy is found in submitting ourselves to your rule and your authority through Jesus Christ because you are truly the king that our heart longs for. Show us that this morning. I pray that, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as I said, today marks the first day of Advent, and Advent is something that we celebrate uh, in the church, usually over the month of December, the four Sundays before Christmas, as we get closer and closer to that day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so we have this Advent wreath, you'll see it over here, with five candles and, and one candle lit, and this wreath represents anticipation. With each candle that we light every single week, we get closer and closer to the day that we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. That's what Advent means. It means arrival, the arrival of Jesus. I remember doing Advent as a kid. My family had a wreath in our house and we would light a candle each week as we got closer and closer to Christmas, and to me as a kid, I could feel the anticipation as we lit each candle because each candle we lit meant we were closer to presents. That's why I couldn't sleep at night because of that anticipation. And maybe if you celebrated Christmas as a kid and you were fortunate to have gifts under the tree on Christmas morning, maybe you could identify with that anticipation as a kid. That's why you can't sleep at night on Christmas Eve or it's why you're the first one to go wake up your parents in the morning so you can begin to to open the gifts. That feeling of anticipation, it's actually really appropriate for Christmas. Maybe not necessarily because of presents under the tree, but this feeling of anticipation is what Christmas is all about. Because the majority of your Bible is written in the context of anxious waiting. The Old Testament of your Bible, the most of it, is written in the context of waiting for God to finally bring on Christmas Day. For God to finally send the Savior that he's promised. And Advent is a way that that we as a church reflect on that waiting in the Bible. We reflect on that anticipation. We reflect on our need for a savior and we celebrate that God sent a savior. And we think about how that changes our lives. 
And so over this Advent season, I wanna look into the Bible and what I want us to do together is I wanna feel this anticipation in the Bible. I wanna feel this anticipation of, of God's promise to send his son, Jesus, and I want us to rejoice together and respond appropriately to the fact that God did send Jesus to us. And so here's what we're gonna do. Over the next four weeks, we're gonna study four announcements that are made about the coming of Jesus in Luke chapters one and two. And we're going to discover why the arrival of Jesus changes our lives. And so the first announcement that we're gonna study this morning, um, we are going to see how all of the Bible anticipates and celebrates and then eventually announces Jesus as our true king. And I wanna talk about how Jesus holds that title in every single one of our lives. You know, here's the uh, understatement of the century, and that's um, I'm tired of politics in this town. I love politics. I love to debate politics. I love to watch political shows. I, I love it, but I'm tired of it. And I think most Americans today would say they're, they're tired of politics, tired of having leaders in a government that seems locked into a political system that thrives off of demeaning others or holding on to power or raising money instead of coming together to form good policy. I think, I think most Americans would say that they would want a government that makes decisions off of what truly is best for the American people and the world and not through a system of power grabbing or who has leverage over who in, in re-election campaigns. But the reality is this, is we're, we're incredibly blessed to live in a country with the kind of government that we have. We live in a democratic republic. And not everyone in the world can say that. We live with a government that does have checks and balances to protect our freedom. And that's a really good thing. It could be a lot worse for us in America. But even in the world's best example of government, there are flaws. There's corruption, there's, there's greed, power is always going to intoxicate, and we're always gonna need to be protected from people who hold power. But one thing all of mankind has in common is we long for a perfect government. We long for a perfect ruler, a ruler that does not use his people to benefit him or herself, but who truly rules with equity and justice and fairness and gentleness. And this longing for a truly good government or a good ruler, it's not foreign to the Bible. One of the reasons why I love the Bible is the Bible anticipates, it knows, and it speaks specifically to everything we really long for. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, all right, in your Old Testament, uh, Moses is writing this book, and the whole book is an address that Moses gives to the people of Israel right before they're about to enter the promised land. So if you remember, the, the nation of Israel, they were in slavery in Egypt, but God promised to give them the land of Canaan. This was the, the promised land. And so what God does, he rescued Israel from Egypt. He led them through the desert to the promised land. They're about to go into the promised land. And Moses gives this sermon 
to give them instructions on how they are to live once they enter the promised land. That's the book of Deuteronomy. This is gonna be their homeland now. So they need to know how they are to live as a nation under God's rule. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, God says to Israel, okay, once you're in the promised land, once you get settled, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna want a king. And when you come to that place where you want a king, I wanna let you know how this is supposed to go. So I want you to look at this, Deuteronomy 17. I'm gonna read verses 14 to 20. This is God's instructions on who the king of Israel should be and how he should rule. Look at this. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses for the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction, Deuteronomy, for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of his instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from his command to the right or left and he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel. So, so what's God's requirement for the king? I get to pick who he is he is not to use this position to enrich himself, and he is to write out for himself my word, probably the book of Deuteronomy he was referring to, and he is to carry it with him at all times, and he is to rule the nation according to this. So what's God saying? He's saying this king actually represents my rule. I choose him. He doesn't get to use this to benefit himself. And he actually rules according to what I have said, not what he has to say. That's who God wants to be king. And that sounds refreshing, right? And there came a time where Israel, they, they went into the promised land and there came a time that they wanted a king. They were ruled mostly by judges that were appointed by God once they entered the promised land. But eventually they came to Samuel who was a prophet of God and said, hey, we we want a king. They wanted a monarchy, just like all the other nations that were around them, and they wanted to have a king over them that had all the power over the nation and could use that power to rival the other nations. And so when the people of Israel came to Samuel because they wanted a king, Samuel could tell that their desire and the kind of person they wanted to be king wasn't going to be exactly in line with Deuteronomy 17. They wanted a king that would rule like the other nations, not a king who would just be a representative ruler for God. 
I wanna read you this. This is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter eight when Israel comes to Samuel and asks for a king. I'm gonna read a good chunk here because I want you to get a sense of what's going on. So uh, 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse four, it says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel of Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. His sons were acting as judges at the time. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me, worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So God's saying, all right, Samuel, let them have their king, but let them know what's gonna happen. Verse 10, Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment of his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out, because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. People refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and he will fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them the Lord told Samuel, appoint a king for them. Israel wasn't interested in the kind of king that was laid out in Deuteronomy 17. They wanted a tall, handsome, powerful king who would make all the nations respect Israel. They wanted someone who would project power, would project strength, not someone who carried this with him everywhere he went and ruled according to it. And so they got Saul. Saul was their first king. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. He was the kind of king they wanted. You know, why are people drawn to this kind of leadership? You know, the kind of leadership where someone will project power and demand people bow to their presence. I think we need to wade into some uncomfortable territory, even in our context here in this country, because something has happened where all of a sudden we as a country want this in our leadership. Someone who will demean others 
in the name of winning. Someone who will punch back 10 times harder when someone goes after him. We praise this now. We think this is normal. Actually, there's many who think it's necessary. I have seen evangelical leaders in this country say this is the kind of leader we need, someone who will punch you back harder if you hit him. And I have seen evangelical leaders in this country almost fired for saying we should not encourage that. See, I think the Bible is prophetic here. We are drawn to those who are powerful as long as they seem to be using that power to push forward our desired agenda. We are willing to look past the character of a ruler or how they'll use their position to benefit themselves as long as they fight for me. And this is what we see Israel doing. They tell Samuel, we don't care if our king uses his position to enrich himself. We don't care if he takes our sons and daughters and our money and all that we have for himself. We, we don't care about that as long as he shows Israel to be as powerful as all the other nations. And this is why God says this was Israel rejecting himself as king. Because they wanted power like the other nations, not the power of Almighty God. And so in Israel's first two kings, they got an example of a train wreck and an example of a good godly king. Uh, their first king was Saul. Uh, Saul looked the part, but he was an awful leader. And then they got David. David was their second king. He didn't look the part, but he was a godly king. And he was, ended up being Israel's greatest king. Most people, didn't, most people didn't think that David even had a shot at being king because he didn't have the swagger. He didn't have the stature that they thought a king should have. But this is what God says of David in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. He said, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have not rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. David was not a perfect king. He made some pretty big mistakes, but he was an example of the kind of king that God wanted over his people. After David came Solomon, who did enrich himself with his position, and he failed as king. And after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split in two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Every single one of the northern kings over the northern kingdom of Israel were evil. They led their people away from the proper worship of God. And the vast majority of the kings over the southern kingdom of Judah were wicked and did not follow God. They had a few good kings. And so after David, almost every one of Israel's kings were evil, did not follow Deuteronomy 17. They led the nation away from worshiping God and led them into worshiping the idols and the gods of the other nations. In fact, in Judah, the southern kingdom, one of their good kings was Josiah, and when Josiah took the throne, he ordered his priests to begin to restore the temple so they could do proper worship of God in the temple. And they stopped worshiping the idols. And so he had his priests in the temple cleaning it out, getting it ready so they could worship God properly inside of it. You know what they found? They found a book. 
And they go, man, we should take this to Josiah, see what this is. They take it to Josiah, and Josiah falls in his face because he realizes this is God's word. It's been shelved for generations. I'm commanded to rule according to this, and it hasn't even been read in generations. The idea of a ruler ruling over God's people with this was just non-existent. And Israel paid the price for the conduct of their kings and the leadership that was over them. They did not bring the kind of security and the world power that Israel thought these kinds of kings would. But all the way back during the reign of King David, God made a promise to David and all of his people that one day a king would come in the line of David who would rule with justice and righteousness according to God's word forever. His kingdom would have no end. And this was the promise that God made. He makes this to David in 2 Samuel chapter seven. I want you to see this in verses 12 to 16. This is what God says to David. He says, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. This is a promise that God gives to David, and this promise has two fulfillments. The first one is kind of an immediate fulfillment in King Solomon, David's son. This was the next king in the line of David. All right, Solomon would build a house for God. He was the one who built the first permanent temple for the worship of God. And Solomon and, and the following kings after Solomon, they failed. They didn't rule according to God's word and God disciplined them, but he never abandoned God's people. But the true fulfillment of this promise to David is that there would one day be a king in the line of David who would come and establish the throne of David forever. A king who would not just build a house for God, but he would build the kingdom of God. A king who would not be disciplined by God for his own sin, but would take on the wrath of God for the sin of God's people. This is a king who would not use the throne to enrich himself at the expense of his people, but a king who out of love would enrich his people at the expense of himself. Earlier, the Cain family came up and they read for us our first Advent reading and they read from Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven, a prophecy that was looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to David. Where Isaiah prophesies this, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. 
He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So when we talk about Advent being a season of anticipation for God's people, this is what they're longing for. The, the day that God would send the true king to sit on the throne of David and rule his people with justice and righteousness forever. And about a thousand years goes by after God makes this promise to David. A, a thousand years filled with evil kings and enemy nations coming in and taking the people into exile thousand years of other nations ruling over Israel. A thousand years where for about 400 of those years, God went silent. It's the period of time between the Testaments in your Bible where the people of God just didn't hear from God. Was he ever gonna make good on his promise? Was he ever going to send the true king? And so we come to a time where Israel is under the rule of the Roman Empire. I mean, it just seems like there's never going to be a time that Israel will be a nation for itself or a people for itself or ever have a king. You have the big, mighty Roman Empire ruling over you. And there's this young woman named Mary living in Nazareth, which is a small city in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. Not a significant person, not rich, not well-known, not powerful. And out of nowhere, in a very private way that would be unexpected when it comes to an announcement of this kind of magnitude, an angel appears. It's time. It's been a thousand years, and it's time for the king to come. Luke chapter one Verses 26 says this, in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, who was a relative of Mary's. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? It's a good question. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth who was pregnant with John the Baptist. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Mary had just received the news that the king that all of God's people have been longing for, the one who will sit on the throne of David for all of eternity, the the fulfillment of the promise was now in her womb. And on Christmas Day, we celebrate the birth of our king. This is why when the wise men came from the east in Matthew uh, chapter two, Uh, They came and they said this in verse two. They said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They knew. For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Jesus would not just be a king over the Jews, but he is the king over all of God's people. All who have placed their faith in Jesus, he is now their king forever. And this is not just a title It's not just something we use to worship him. No, this is a role that he plays in our lives. If you are a Christian, Jesus is the king of your life. You cannot be a Christian and Jesus not be king. And so to to close our time together this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna show you three ways that Jesus rules in our life as king based on what we've read together this morning. So three ways, here's the first one. The first way that Jesus rules in our life is this. Jesus rules according to God's word. He rules according to this. If Jesus is God's true and forever king of his people, then he will be a king described in Deuteronomy 17. If God says, this is what my king should be like, Jesus is gonna look like that. A king who will consistently rule according to God's word and will never waver away from it. Jesus says himself in in John chapter seven, verse 16, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. Uh, I think this is an aspect of the Christian life that I think often gets overlooked. Uh, We preach so hard on the fact that our salvation is not earned through works, but it's given to us as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ, that we are not saved by works, we're saved by grace, and that is the glorious truth of the gospel. But the reality is, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we receive his forgiveness by grace, after we become children of God forever, lavished in his grace, he becomes king. And we are called to submit to the authority of our king and his word. When one comes to Jesus, they give up lordship over their life. And they give that to Jesus. If that has not occurred, then one has not come to Jesus because he's king. He's lord over our lives. And so the Christian life is a life of submission to God's word. And this submission, it doesn't lead to bondage and suffering, but it it leads to life and joy. And so let me ask all of us, is Jesus the king of our lives? Does he have authority in your life? Does his word carry weight to you? 
when you read it. If God, God's word says one thing and the culture gets all up in arms and says, well, we don't like that God's word says that or we don't like the Bible says that. Well, do we waver? Do we buckle under the pressure? We say, no, the king has spoken and he's king. Culture, you're not king. He is king. Does his word inform how we make decisions? Does it inform what comes out of our mouths? Does his word disciple and speak to our hearts more than the screens that are always in front of us? I think many of us are content with Jesus being our savior, being our brother, being our friend, our shoulder to cry on, and he is all of those things, but he is also king. And he rules according to God's word. A second way that I think Jesus rules is he rules with love. Jesus rules with love. His rule over our lives is one where everything he does, everything he says, it's for our good, it's for our joy. See, the world believes that the best way to wield power, to display strength is through force. You can get people to submit to your authority by threatening them and making them fear you. But this is not how Jesus wields his authority and displays his strength. Jesus rules with love. Uh, in John chapter 13, uh, Jesus and the disciples were having Passover together and Jesus takes a, a basin of water and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Uh, this is the one and true forever king who sits on the throne of David, who all of the Bible has been anticipating, and he's on his knees washing the feet of his disciples. And, and Peter realizes this. He goes, this doesn't compute in my head. You're like the king of kings, and you're on your knees washing my feet. And so Peter says, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. See, Peter thinks he's being reverent, but Peter has a worldly view of leadership. And Jesus says, Peter, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. You have no part of me if you don't sit there and receive my love. So what was Jesus saying to Peter? Jesus was referring to the cross that he was about to be nailed to, and he was saying, Peter, I am not a king who will use the throne to enrich myself at your expense, but a king who out of love will give you all things at the expense of myself. That's how this works, and if you want any part of me, you are going to have to receive that. Jesus wields his power and displays his strength through love. And this is how we are saved from our sins, by receiving the love of God through Jesus and his death on the cross, and that's it. It's receiving what he did for us. It's grace, it's mercy. He didn't do it because we earned it. So this is how we are saved, is through receiving the love of Jesus, but then this is how we follow Jesus as his people. We love one another and our neighbors as Jesus loved us. And so Jesus says there in John 13 to his disciples, he says, so if I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
Later in that chapter, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, what should mark followers of Christ and what should make us stick out in this world is not our thirst for power, but our love, our humility, our giving of ourselves and what we have for others. Jesus calls us not to display strength through being served or punching back harder, but by serving. You know, if Jesus is your king, you'll be a servant to your spouse and not demand to be served. Or you'll be a servant to your roommates or to your children or to your coworkers or your neighbors next door, not demand to be served. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we do as his followers. That's what our king has commanded of us. And that's what our king has done for us. Third and finally, Jesus rules forever. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, in the promise that God gave to David, in the prophecy read in Isaiah 9, and the announcement made by Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1, and countless other texts in the Bible, it is clear that Jesus will sit on the throne forever. He is on the throne today. He will remain on the throne after this life is over and he will be there for eternity. And so to live the Christian life with Jesus as king is to live with faith that Jesus is seated on the throne. And if Jesus is seated on the throne, then that means you can trust him and you can surrender your all to him. So no matter what goes on in the world or who has power or what's happening amongst other nations, Jesus is still on the throne. When the diagnosis comes, it doesn't mean Jesus made a mistake. He's on the throne and you can trust him. I love how John Piper puts it. He says, you know, with Jesus on the throne, there is no sickness that can take us out of this world without his command, and there is no doctor that can keep us here if he has called us home, because he's on the throne. When your life doesn't go as planned or, or desired, it's because Jesus, the one who's on the throne, knows what will give you joy in this life. When you're ridiculed for your faith, Jesus is on the throne. And John 15 tells us that the world hated Jesus before they hated us. And so with Jesus on the throne forever, we can live in submission to God's word. With Jesus on the throne, we can say, okay, God, yes, this, I will follow this. I will see this as truth. Even when others don't want me to do that. With Jesus on the throne, we can live our lives Loving others as Christ has loved us. Knowing that that truly is how we display strength. And we can surrender everything. Knowing that under his rule, under the rule of the one who's on the throne, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friends, the good news of Advent 
And what we celebrate on Christmas Day is this, is that our king has arrived and assumed the throne, the king that we all truly long for. And your joy and my joy is found in surrendering all of who we are to our true king. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are our king and you sit on the throne. And Lord, I pray that as your church, as those who are your children, that Lord, we would see you as our king. And Lord, may that just comfort our souls. That there is not one on the throne who is evil. There is not one on the throne who takes advantage of us or abuses us. There's not one on the throne who uses us or takes what we have just to enrich himself. There's not one on the throne who's power thirsty. There's not one on the throne who has no idea what he's doing. But there's a king on the throne who is truly good, who is truly righteous, who is truly just and knows exactly what we need and what is for our good and for our joy. And there is one on the throne who doesn't take what we have to enrich himself, but joyfully gives us all things at the expense of himself. Oh Lord, what an inverted view of leadership that is when we compare it to the world. Help us to live our lives following Jesus, our King, submitting to his word, loving as he has loved us, and having faith that he's on the throne forever. And God, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.